Last season on the Choosing Sides F1 podcast, we established unequivocally that F1 is the pinnacle of motorsports. We did, but honestly, I was left with more questions than answers, Tony. I'm Tony Cameron Brown, a tech, culture, and F1 commentator. And I'm Michael Costa, comedian from The Daily Show. Join us for season two of Choosing Sides F1. Our F1 102, if you will. And get all of the answers. All of them? Listen to Choosing Sides F1 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julian Edelman from Games With Names, and we're on a search to find the greatest games of all time with the players and coaches who lived in them. Ever wonder what a locker room feels like at a halftime of a Super Bowl? Or what about the, the after parties? We're going to dive deep into the most iconic games with the most iconic people. New episodes dropping weekly. Listen to Games with Names on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Davis Miller, host of the new podcast, The Tao of Muhammad Ali. I met Ali in 1988, and surprisingly, we became friends. His influence profoundly changed my perspective on the purpose of life itself. I'll tell you that story and also stories of others touched by the champ. Listen to The Tao of Muhammad Ali on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. The Volume. Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Breber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are coming to you all from Summer League here at the Blue Wire Studios in Las Vegas. We've gotten a chance to watch a ton of really fun basketball these last couple days. And we're going to talk about a lot of the most exciting young players that we have seen. And we have to start, Logan, of course, with Victor Wembanyama who has been the talk of the town and had a highly anticipated debut. It was a great environment until Wemby actually started playing. And then I think let a lot of people down. So a disappointing summer league debut from him. What did you take away and how concerned are you about what we saw from Wemby? It was definitely disappointing to say the least, but I don't really think the Spurs set him up for a lot of success. Carson, mm-hmm. uh, you see a lot of isolation, a lot of perimeter initiating from Wemby. And I just don't think long-term Uh, that's where he's going to be best uh, served. I think you need to initiate a lot more stuff on the low block. Uh, With a guy as big as Wemby, you're just always going to be attacking a drastic size mismatch, which will either you can get an easy post fade, post hook, something like that, or you're drawing doubles, which enables him as a playmaker. I think a lot of people overreacted uh, and were really disappointed. Yeah, it's encouraging that Wemby has all these tools and that his max could be really special and unstoppable. Uh, but you're just not setting him up for success. He's driving in a lot of crowded paints, a lot of set Mm -hmm. defenses, and he's taking a lot of tough shots. I think that if you're initiating with him out of screens, out of post-ups, stuff like that, it'll just lead to easier, more conducive offense. Uh, Yes, I was disappointed, but I think a lot of things compounded in that game. I think you see a lot of blown layups, a lot of missed shots, and some bad turnovers, and I think it just led to him kind of losing his confidence as the game went along, and that is what really stuck with me. If they'd gotten him easier looks earlier, I think it may have been a better game, but I just think it kind of compounded into just a poor opening performance for him, and he lost his confidence as the game went along. But like I said, I don't think the Spurs set him up for success. I think when we get into real in-game action, it'll be easier, and they will run stuff that leads to easier offense for Wemby. 
I absolutely agree. And listen, Wemby did not play well. Point blank, he had a brutal shooting night. We did see him at times lose his handle. We saw some of his actual issues explode, uh, exposed in terms of his struggles with physicality mm -hmm. as a driver, his issues getting all the way to the rim when he's coming downhill. A lot of times we see him settle for those runners in the 8 to 10 foot range, but none of that is surprising. Like those are realities of his game that we've seen on film repeatedly. And I've used this line before, but I like it, so I'll use it again. It felt like this game plan was designed by somebody who watched a highlight reel of Wemby. They called him seven foot five Kevin Durant, and they were like, oh, great. Awesome. This guy sounds sick. And there's such a fascination with these big men who can do these wing-esque things. Everybody compared Chet to KD. Mm -hmm. Same stuff happens with Wemby because, of course, he has a unique level of fluidity and ball handling and shooting for being over seven foot tall. It is not the foundation of his game. It is not the bread and butter of his game, and it never will be. First of all, I would not really expect Wemby to ever be as good of an offensive player as he is a defensive player. I do think he can be a great offensive player. I think he has a very high offensive floor, but fundamentally, I think this is a guy who is someday going to be the best defensive player on the planet, and that's what gives him the all-NBA value on top of his complementary offensive production. The fact that he is a guy who you can run pick and roll for and theoretically should be able to get a pick and pop look for very frequently, or if he rolls hard to the rim, he is like a comically massive lob target and a fluid athlete and a good finisher at seven foot five with an eight foot wingspan. So I totally agree with you. It was way too much isolation. Let's see what Wemby can do as a perimeter creator when that's never going to be his foundation. That's something that you are looking at in terms of upside down the line as a rookie he's going to struggle to be consistently efficient there. It's a big reason that we saw him struggle in terms of efficiency as mm -hmm. a perimeter shot maker this past year over in France. He was 28% from deep. That's not a testament to his status as a shooting prospect. It's a question of shot quality. He's not going to create seamless step backs consistently. He has the moments. It's not consistent at this point, and nor does it have to be. I wanted to see more pick and roll for him, absolutely. I think that's where you create the highest quality looks. I did think, though, he definitely has to bear responsibility for the fact that he was too tentative. Mm -hmm. He was not just confidently taking those pick-and-pop looks. He wasn't attacking closeouts, and so then they would just sort of devolve into even more isolations. The couple times we did see him roll, it was a very soft roll to the free-throw line area, and so he's not getting the easiest possible opportunity out of it. So you combine that with his finishing issues, which I do think are real and are probably the most significant thing that he actually has to improve on. But if Wemby does turn into like a legitimately strong guy who can move people around in the lane, I think he's going to be the best player in the world. But that's where he's most lacking right now. A brutal off shooting night. All of this comes together to really impact his confidence. Again, the ball handling and traffic, he's 7'5". Like, of course, if he is running these stagnant isolations and guys are able to dig on him and he's got multiple arms down there, he's still a human being. He is more alien than anybody else, but he just wasn't put in a good position to succeed. Played poorly, but this is not the way that we see the best version of Wemby either. Not at all. And I think it's funny you bring up uh, his struggles in the lane when he's driving into those crowded lanes. Like, a lot of people overreacted to the turnovers. Guys, Wemby is the lane. Like, he's, yeah. he's, he's huge. Uh, so, no, I don't think he was in the best position, but I do think there were a lot of encouraging things that we saw from Wemby. We can start defensively. It's comical. You saw this a lot uh, overseas and highlights and stuff like that. Wemby doesn't have to move to block shots. He mm -hmm. doesn't even look like he's trying sometimes. He can just reach his arms up, and in that position, he's not even trying 
to block a shot and he can inadvertently block one. So I think you're looking at an all NBA caliber, all defense caliber center as a rim protector. But I really liked what we saw out of him on the perimeter. That's another thing. Uh, the Spurs had him on Brandon Miller a lot of this game. I don't think that's his long-term fit. I think he could be a really good help side guy, but long-term he's going to be at the five. But it was encouraging to me the way he was able to uh, kind of take away Brandon Miller and any guy that he was on. His arms are so long. I mean, Wemby can drop basically further than any other defender in the NBA because of how long he is mm-hmm. and just affect shots in at least easy transition stuff. But he's a he's going to be a terrific perimeter defender as well uh, because of how long his arms are. But I did think we saw some other encouraging things too. the playmaking. I don't yeah. know if you saw that one crossover. Uh, he goes in between the legs. He goes crossover to his right hand and in one fluid motion, kicks that ball over to the uh, guy in the dunker spot. He ends up missing the layup, but it was just so fluid. And I did think that Wimby played an unselfish game too. He was trying to move the ball within the flow of the offense. Granted, I did think that the lights were a little bright for him. I thought he stagnated yeah. a little bit. Uh, wasn't attacking when the defense wasn't set. He would wait for the ball and then the defense would get reset. But I liked how unselfish he was. I liked the playmaking flashes and there is a lot of encouraging stuff. Like I said, in a better situation when there are, when there's an actual game plan, when they are running stuff through him, I think we're going to see all of his best qualities shine. But again, like I said, I think there were a lot of encouraging things in this game, the playmaking, the defense as well. And he's got a really solid foundation there too. Yeah, I mean, he's Victor Wembanyama. He's a generational defensive prospect. Even in, as you said, a strange role, mostly guarding the perimeter, the guy ends up with five blocks. Like, he mm-hmm. is just a monstrously impactful rim protector, and that is going to be the value that makes him a star night in, night out. If he goes off for 25, and if he is creating off the dribble, and if he is knocking down his triples and all these varieties of ways, fantastic. Then again, you have like the best player in the world, Mm -hmm. but no matter what, if he can fit in offensively and get higher quality looks, then that defensive value is always going to be there. But I do want to reiterate, like, I'm not confident that Wemby's going to be the best scorer out of this class. I think that this is something we've talked about before. Scoot's ability to pressure the rim as truly a unique athlete with his combination of quickness, like top-notch acceleration, but also power and also vertical pop around the rim. If he's a competent pull-up jump shooter, which I think he'll be, he could totally be more productive in that primary ball handling role. Brandon Miller, if he totally rounds out the wing scoring skill set and is able to do it out of pick and roll, but also off ball and also in transition with his lethal shooting and size and the ball handling chops, Those guys have super seamless paths to being 25 plus point per game scores. Wemby is going to have to prove that he can be a consistent high level post hub to get to that Mm -hmm. point. And he has to maybe do more of the effective isolation stuff. And I think some of that will become more efficient when he's specifically mismatch hunting instead of just these sort of stagnant random feeling ISOs. But Wemby doesn't have to be the best scorer in the class to be clearly the best player in the class. When you consider the unrivaled defensive impact, I agree with you on the playmaking flashes. I thought that that was impressive, and he just has such an impressive level of vision for a guy of that size and at that age. My opinion on Wemby doesn't change at all from one game. I agree. It was an adjustment. He did look uncomfortable. The physicality thing is real. Mm-hmm. But guess what? Like Part of this is just shooting variance. I mean, he goes one of six from three, right? He got a couple good looks in this game that just didn't fall. He missed a dunk where he did a really nice job creating a look for himself with that spin out of the post. So I'm not worried about Wemby. We do have some news in relation to Wemby though, which is that Greg Popovich at a spry 74 years old 
already the oldest head coach in NBA history is signing a five-year extension with the Spurs. What does that mean for his future and the future of the organization? I mean, I think it's bright. I mean, Pop's one of the greatest defensive coaches of all time. And I don't think we thought Pop was going to go anywhere uh, unless he retired. Uh, Pop's always been a great defensive coach. He's been, uh, he's built a couple dynasties on the backs of two of the greatest centers of all time and David Robinson and Tim Duncan. I mean, he's also been great at player development too. I don't want to undersell yeah. that aspect of the guys that we saw. Um, I wasn't a big Devin Vassell guy. I wasn't a big Jeremy Sohan guy. I wasn't a big Malachi Branham guy. All of those guys looked great last year with the Spurs, but you think back to even other guys, uh, DeJounte Murray took a massive leap. He was a late first round pick. Uh, you think about the Jakob Pertles of the world. Like Pop is really good at player development and building a winning culture. At this point, I can't imagine the Spurs without Greg and Popovich. I mean, they go, they go mm -hmm. hand in hand together. Uh, I think it's bright. I think that Pop is buying in. What this signals to me about Pop is that he's buying in as Wemby is maybe, again, I, I don't understate this as the building block of another championship team. And yeah. I'm fully all in on that too. I, I'm glad they re-signed him, and I think that he sees bigger things with Wemby. And again, maybe another championship on the horizon if Wemby reaches the expectations, especially offensively, that we think he can reach. It's awesome because I think that that was really the main selling point of the San Antonio mm -hmm. landing spot for Wemby from a fan perspective. They may be lacking in the kind of really dynamic young guard talent who you can immediately pair him with, right? They don't have a Cade Cunningham. They don't have the Rockets collection of young talent, although that's more on the wings. Same goes for Orlando. But all these teams who already have that sort of young star who you can attach Wemby to, Keldon Johnson doesn't quite fit into that mold. Devin Vassell, I don't think, has that kind of high-end ceiling. But what they have is a level of organizational competence mm -hmm. that has been the best in the league for 25 years since Greg Popovich took over. And so I think this is an awesome affirmation of how much he believes in Wemby and how committed he is to this timeline. Because it's felt for years like once Kawhi left, okay, mm -hmm. is the window on them as a contender closing? And then once the DeMar and LaMarcus duo fell apart and it became evident that that wasn't going anywhere in terms of championship contention, I was like, I mean, he's got to be hanging it up eventually, but he wrote out the low point and now he gets this generational talent. So... As you said, nobody has a more proven player development record. I mean, I don't know if you even mentioned Kawhi. No, I did mention Kawhi. Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili, mm -hmm. Keldon Johnson on this current roster was the 29th pick. That's an impressive instance of player development. Like, nobody consistently gets the most out of their talent, particularly out of the draft. And nobody has a better history of relationships with international stars, particularly. Like, the Spurs are an international organization through and through. And... This just goes a long way in making San Antonio a destination because great. Now you have Wemby. The challenge that is going to be on the horizon is how do you build the contender around him? What's your approach? How quickly do you try to make that push, pool some of your young assets, try to bring in that second star? We know that if you go in on the wrong second star, things can go south. We've already seen how much these timelines can be accelerated in today's NBA. Luca already had things go south with Kristaps Porzingis. There's already chaos and discussion about what's next with Kyrie Irving. Zion is already apparently very disgruntled in New Orleans. Like you just don't have the windows that you used to. I think that's a very fine line to walk, but I think that pop is a guy who is going to put them in the best position to handle this timeline appropriately and to attract the right kind of people to come and play alongside Wemby. And I think that it's just a great sign for the organization. So we saw Wemby yesterday opposite him, of course, was the number two pick in this draft, Brandon Miller, who was 
I guess a widely criticized pick by some. There was a lot of believers in the scoop is just, scoot is just a better prospect camp. You and I were not in that camp. You and I both actually slightly preferred Brandon Miller for his versatility of impact, his floor as a wing who can do a whole lot of things at a high level. He hasn't been the most productive and efficient through three summer league games, but are you concerned about him? I'm not concerned at all. I mean, primarily because the role that they've had him in in summer league isn't really the role that we're going to see him in uh, at the NBA level alongside yeah. LaMelo. I mean, he was entrusted with a lot of primary ball handling duties uh, in these games that we've seen, and I thought he's succeeded pretty well. I've liked his handle out of the pick and roll. Brandon, uh, I didn't really like his handle when we were uh, analyzing him in the pre-draft process. It's a lot tighter than I thought. He's a good decision maker. He's got a good handle. He's good at driving the lane. And like I said, man, again, context is everything when we're especially diagnosing summer league games. Not only is Brandon Miller entrusted with a lot of ball handling duties where he will be maximized alongside a guy like LaMelo Ball because he's such an elite shooter, he's playing alongside a bunch of guards that don't like moving the rock anyway. Yeah. Nick Smith Jr. is out there trying to get buckets. James yeah. Booknight is trying to get buckets. Alongside LaMelo Ball, he's going to be feeding Brandon. And Brandon's an elite shooter. I don't undersell that point. He's like a 40% catch and shooter, but secondarily, Good ball handler, I think has, yeah, man, like 20 point per game to 25 point per game upside. It's not all going to be roses immediately. And this is not the best situation. I think people can be overly critical of summer league games, but I think Brandon's shown us a really solid floor in a pretty poor situation. Like there's a lot of times where Brandon is sitting there on the wing and uh, we see book or Nick Smith in these games, take a contested jumper when immediately his role is going to be as a uh, closeout attacker, as an elite spot up shooter and a guy who plays off ball. And I think he's going to be great at that role immediately. Uh, I'm not concerned about Brandon Miller. Although I know that, like like you said, Matt Sponauer, uh, shout out Stay Hot, shout out Blue Wire, uh, resident Hornets fan, wanted Scoot. Mm -hmm. I think Brandon's the guy. And uh, I'm really excited to see him uh, alongside LaMelo. I think it's very similar to the Wemby situation. My opinion mm -hmm. on anybody is not going to be fundamentally changed from a few, gays, few games of Summer League. If I believe in you as a prospect, I'm still going to believe in you at this point. I do think, though, we have seen some of his limitations shown on this stage, and I think the biggest one is overall adjusting to the physicality mm -hmm. of the league. I think that you see that from him in terms of his propensity to just get into instant foul trouble, but you can't get into real foul trouble in summer league. He's fouling eight times in a game. Even in this last one, it was his best performance yet with five fouls in 31 minutes. I think he's having some trouble navigating screens on that end, which although I really liked him as a defensive prospect was a challenge of his just as a bigger wing who at times takes on those perimeter assignments. And sometimes he's just sort of hacking guys on the way through that more significantly though. I think offensively rim pressure is going to be a challenge mm -hmm. for him because we have seen him more in that primary ball handler role, as you said, and he is a phenomenal shooting prospect. He has an incredibly impressive level of ball handling and presence out of pick and roll for a six, nine wing of that age. Like he'll hit people with the hoss mm -hmm. and dribble and trap you in jail. He's tremendous at manipulating defenders and drawing fouls. He is a good playmaker. The one thing he doesn't have is that really high end first step. And he's a good vertical athlete, not a great one. He has creativity as a finisher, but he's not a big, strong guy. So that's where he has struggled in terms of getting into the lane. He's not producing those attempts in the restricted area, but I also think some of this is just, he's been off shooting. Like I thought he got good looks. He ended up five for 15 in this game against Wemby. Some of that is just, he's missing good pull-up looks from mid range and from deep. But I thought 
in the fourth quarter of the first game against the Spurs, he started cooking and it's just because his jump shot was falling at the level that we expect from a truly elite shooter. But I really like the playmaking flashes we see from him. I think he is a tremendously aware guy, does a good job of hitting rollers consistently. I really like the foul drawing. I like the manipulation of defenders. And I totally agree in a more off ball role playing with a playmaker like LaMelo, he's just going to get higher quality looks. Summer league offense is rough. And if you are the guy who is carrying the primary load and it's something that you're capable of, like Brandon Miller has these pick and roll chops, but it's not his primary role. You're going to struggle to be efficient. You're going to struggle to be consistently productive. So no, I'm not really worried about Brandon Miller. I did like what I saw from Brandon defensively though. I mean, he had that big block in transition. He jumped a couple of passing lanes. Like I've liked his hands outside of the, uh, yeah. outside well, of the foul. He's lane. using them a little too much. That's fair. I, I don't know. I did like what I saw to Brandon defensively too, though. I legitimately think that if he can get the fouling in control, I think this is a guy that could guard one through four, maybe with a little more size. He's still not big enough. Um, and I do think he needs to be more aggressive when driving the rack too. This was a guy in college. I mean, he averaged 4.7 free throw attempts uh, per game last yeah. season. Um, but I think a lot of that is the manipulation of defenders. He's so good at getting guys to bite on pump fakes at trapping dudes on his back. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's more that than the rim pressure that gets him to the line. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I think that he needs to he needs to lean into that a little more mm -hmm. uh, when we finally see him get to the league. Uh, I'm still very confident in Brandon Miller as a prospect that he's still my number two guy. Yeah, and I don't want to like I don't want to just uh, I just don't want to like diminish Scoot or anything. I love Scoot too. Yeah. but I think Brandon Miller is going to be a. Last season on the Choosing Sides F1 podcast, we established unequivocally that F1 is the pinnacle of motorsports. Lily Herman, my co-host in season one, helped me choose a team, a driver, and then... Well, we sent you on your jolly way. Yeah. I'm Tony Cameron Brown, a tech, culture, and F1 commentator. I'm Michael Costa, comedian, Daily Show correspondent. And we're back with season two, because as it turns out, F1's newest fan is still a little... Dazed and confused. Join us for season two of Choosing Sides F1 as we dive deeper into the rabbit hole of the pinnacle of motorsports. Who makes money here? What's CFD? How do you manage a tire? You, get back in there. What are the rumors? What's the gossip? But you also know that someone's listening to your radio. Uh, I'm going to pull up a picture of a tea cozy. I, I want to see what this thing looks like. Are you going to be doing that accent this whole pot? Listen to season two of Choosing Sides F1 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. You find it. I'm Julian Edelman from Games With Names, and we're on a search to find the greatest games of all time. I'm talking Hall of Famers, MVPs, gold medalists. I absolutely hate the Colts, bro. This game, I swear, led to the deflate gate. Hey, guys, this ball's a little flat. <laughs> Ever wonder what a locker room feels like at a halftime of a Super Bowl? Julian walking around. I'm pretty sure he had his shirt off for reasons I'm not sure. He was saying, gotta believe. Oh, you gotta believe. From 18-1 with Eli. Are you calling Bill just a cheater? Is that what you're I'm saying right saying now? He's, he's looking for an advantage. The 2004 ALCS with Big Pop. The Red Sox in 2004 bounced back after the 3-0 in a winner chicken dinner. Homie. The immaculate reception with Terry Bradshaw. Fired the ball. I hear the roar of the crowd. I never thought he caught the ball, but he did. We're going to dive deep into the most iconic games with the most iconic people. New episodes dropping weekly. Listen to Games with Names on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Davis Miller, host of the new podcast, The Tao of Muhammad Ali. I met Ali back in 1988 
and to my great surprise, we became friends. His influence profoundly changed my perspective on family, spirituality, and on the purpose of life itself. I'll tell you that story and also stories of others touched by the champ, including people such as Reverend Al Sharpton and James Buster Douglas. We'll even hear from Muhammad's daughter, Rashida. Well, my dad was, he was Peter Pan. Like, he never really grew up. He was very mature when it came down to social issues. He was very in tune. He felt a responsibility to be able to share his connection to millions of people who were in need. In each of these stories, we share lessons, lessons that have meant a great deal to me and that I hope will be meaningful to you. Listen to The Tao of Muhammad Ali on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Dog in the league. Well, I think finishing at the rim against NBA length and defense, even in summer league, is something that we've seen be a challenge for mm-hmm. like all the top prospects. It's just a level up from what these guys are used to, where most of them are like convincingly the best athlete on the floor. And uh, I think it's something that we saw a little bit with a couple of the other top prospects who we watched go head to head yesterday, that being a men Thompson and Scoot Henderson in what was a really fun Trailblazers Rockets game. Who impressed you more between those two, Scooter or Man? That's a tough question. I'm probably going to go Scoot just because of how he started out with that jump shooting. He starts mm-hmm. out 4-4 four, four in oh man, my mouth was watering, dude. When you see Scoot Henderson turn on that jump shot, it's like he has no holes in this game. He's a complete offensive beast. Uh, hits, a, hits a couple step backs, hits some pull-up jumpers, and that's the one real hole in his game. I'm going to uh, rattle off some numbers. Last season with the G League Ignite, 35% on pull-ups, 33% on step backs. He was 24% overall on jump shots. And so that's the biggest hole in his game. So when he starts out 4 4 mm-hmm. I'm like, uh-oh, we're in for a show. Yeah. Rest of the way, he goes 0-4 on jump shots, but... Uh, to see that ceiling realize a little bit, to see those flashes, it was very impressive. But I was also just impressed with how easy it is for Scoot to get to the rack, to get downhill, mm-hmm. to you know, to put pressure on the rim and to get easy looks. Uh, again, uh, the surrounding pieces here are not great in, in the Portland Summer League. I think with real NBA talent around him, you're seeing him maximize guys and get open looks for shooters as well as easy looks for himself. And uh, I think this is important to note, too. He goes 15-5-6 and six, uh, in basically three quarters, too. He doesn't play that last quarter because he gets injured. Uh, it's very close. I was very impressed with the men, but Scoot, with what I saw with that jump shoot, uh, jump shooting ceiling in the first half, uh, that's what really intrigued me about Scoot. Yeah, and it was particularly out of the mid-range. He had mm-hmm. that one step back three, but that's where we know that he's much more comfortable at this stage. And it's really remarkable how much he reminds me of Russ. Like, just in terms of their athletic composition, there's no other dudes out there with this combination of ridiculous acceleration first step and then also that power and that explosive verticality around the rim, the ability to pressure the rim so consistently. I thought Scoot was super impressive. The inconsistency as a jump shooter is going to be a reality. Mm -hmm. It was a reality this entire season in G League Ignite. Sometimes he put on clinics, sometimes he couldn't make a thing. But his ability to generate that pressure around the rim, the playmaking that feeds off of that where he's very heads up and dynamic and potentially how he can impact the defensive end of the floor with great athletic tools and a high motor. I didn't think that this was a standout game from him there, but he does have that ceiling as well. I would probably lean scoot as well Mm -hmm. because of the pull up jump shooting show that we did see from him early, but both these guys showed that they are standout athletes, standout playmakers as we've known. And 
I did like a lot of what I saw from a man. It was fun to see him against any version of NBA competition just because the overtime elite experience is so weird. You'll see them playing in a high school gym against dudes who are just like not in the same stratosphere athletically as him and Asar. So to see him on a stage like this was fun. He remains such a uniquely special ball handler mm -hmm. for six, seven. Like he just loves that in and out dribble. And let me tell you what, it's very effective. I think he's one of the best one-handed passers that I've ever seen. His ability with a live dribble to create opportunities for his teammates with such velocity from so many different angles at his height. He had that one where he was driving the baseline and he threw that one-handed bounce pass to a guy who was able to just get an open dunk out of it. It's such a special trait. And athletically, he does pop. I think Scoop popped a little bit more. Scoot is just next level, but so is a man. I think the challenge for him in this game was really finishing around mm -hmm. the rim, which is interesting for an athlete of that caliber. I think there's a couple reasons for it. One of it is just the adjustment to this level of size and athleticism and not being able to just completely athletically dominate everybody on the floor. I thought he was weirdly focused on switching from his right to left hand from the right side of the rim, which he did on a few occasions. His left hand is really not that good. I noted it as an area that needs improvement for him as I was scouting him. And there were a couple times where he had really awkward finishes because of that. But I think the biggest thing that is going to remain an issue for him mm -hmm. is that until he can reliably knock down those floater range shots, he's going to have to just force some tough finishes out of pick and roll because he's got to go right at you. It's all he's got. He did have one nice floater in this game, yeah. but that's not a weapon for him yet. So there's going to be some of the forcing tough finishes, but what I did love was how consistently he used his rim pressuring for playmaking. He ends this game with five assists. I thought that he could have easily had three or four more. Like it was a really nice game from him in that respect. And then you saw some of the two way stuff with him too. He ends this game with seven stocks. There were some very overtime elite gambles in there. He had such a dumb reach and foul. Sometimes he's just like chasing guys from behind and seeing if he can catch him sleeping. Like there's going to be an adjustment from that kind of super free flowing chaotic basketball into more structured NBA stuff. But some of the gambles paid off and his shot blocking. He and Asar both just have special size and length and athleticism at that position. So I love what I saw from both of these guys. Like they didn't play exceptional games by their standards. None of these top four guys have so far, but they're all very special prospects. And it was fun to see that translate to this stage. Yeah, for sure. And I, you mentioned the NBA structure that we saw too. Uh, a man uh, was really good out of the pick and roll. I thought in this game and what's really, uh, I know we've noted through the pre-draft process too, that he's got exceptional burst. One of the quickest first steps. Uh, I've ever seen, but I was really impressed that out of pick and rolls, out of dribble handoff, stuff like that, he's able to get into the lane and to draw a defender so quickly. If he does develop that in-between game, that mid-range, that floater game, it's going to be really hard to defend him, but mm -hmm. a lot of passes out of the pick and roll where he can just see over the defense and see angles that other guys can't. And defensively, I was astounded. I thought it was a really, really good performance from him, hands-wise, yeah. uh, jumping, passing lanes, blocking shots. Uh, yeah, I was I was really impressed with the men. I think the finishing thing is a real issue, and it was weird to me too, dude. He drove right side and switched to that left yeah. hand like four times. Two of them got stuffed. Two of them he converted. That's a real issue, but he's got such great athletic traits, and I think if he can figure out scoring in the long term, he's got everything else. He's going to be a good defender. He's going to be a good playmaker, and I really liked his court vision. I think long term, you're looking at a guy who just has 
special athletic traits for a guy who sees the floor this well. The Rockets also, of course, had another very interesting first-round pick out there, that being Cam Whitmore, who was seemingly a consensus top 10 guy and then fell all the way to 20. What'd you see out of him in this game? That guy's like the... I wrote this down in my notes. That guy's like the energizer bunny, man. He just plays with such intense energy yeah. throughout the game. I love it. There's a there's a lack of control with Cam Whitmore that he needs oh, to sure. reel in. Like uh, I see it like Jaden Ivey kind of just, uh, I gotta go. I gotta go. I gotta He's go. the Tasmanian devil. He was in this game for sure. <laughs> Dude, he is just full go all the time. If he can rein that in and reel it back a little bit, slow down, I, I think Cam Whitmore is going to be special. That's the one thing that I noted uh, about Whitmore that, uh, was a little off. He doesn't have a great shooting uh, performance here. He drove a lot of crowded paints where I'm like, Cam, kick out to a shooter. You know, you mm -hmm. got an easy three there. And he struggled to finish through contact. He struggled to make shots in general. But his athletic traits are freakish, man. He's such a, he just plays with such a brutal force right now that if he can rein those things in, I think you're looking at a guy who could be really special. He's got a long way to go. Like, yeah. uh, he's got to, like I said, he's got to reel himself in. But there are very few guys with these kind of special athletic traits. And that's why I think Cam was a guy who was regarded so highly, but also mm -hmm. the rawness and the out-of-control element is a reason that I didn't like him as much as, say, a Jairus Walker, even a Taylor mm -hmm. Hendricks, these guys who have higher floors because of their multifaceted impacts, the fact that they have several high-level traits. With Cam, you're pretty much looking at freak athleticism and everything else needs to be refined. Mm -hmm. I thought, first of all, we talked about this with Brandon Miller, he is a prominent young pick, so he's in an on-ball role. He's running some pick and roll here at a volume that I don't think he will be in the season, and that's just not where he thrives. He doesn't have the playmaking chops. He loves his step back, but as a pull-up jump shooter, he's pretty erratic, and he was in this game. He only made one, and he probably took six or seven. He goes five of 18 in the game overall, and there was very much a bull in a china shop feel to it. It's <laughs> like, all right, straight line drives into people's chest at 6'6", 230 with a 40-inch vert being strong as hell. Can I finish through you or am I going to get stuffed by NBA length and guys knowing exactly what I'm going to do and being in position? And it was a combination of the two. I thought he was dynamic in transition. Mm -hmm. Also, a lot of times he was totally out of control in transition. So this was the Cam Whitmore experience. I think this is a reason maybe why he fell. He definitely needs refinement, but I think in a role where he is more of a catch and shooter and a closeout attacker. And his offensive role is simplified to really maximize his strengths because he was a good catch and shooter. Mm -hmm. And he is a great closeout attacker with his athleticism. He'll do well. I believe in him. I think he was an incredible value pick. There's just not room for him to try to do a lot of the ball handling stuff here in Houston with Jalen Green and Amen Thompson and Jabari Smith, obviously. But I think he's better suited for a more complimentary role anyways. I do want to quickly shout out Jabari Smith, obviously a second year guy. So summer league, you expect him to play a little bit better, but this was a really impressive second half from him. He has the incredible game winner that I'm sure a lot of you guys saw just a crazy catch turn and fire from like probably 26, 27 feet with 0.6 seconds to win the game. But he goes over 30. I thought it was really strong in terms of pull up, jump shooting, face up shooting. I thought he had some nice finishes just fitting in offensively. Because he doesn't have that level of fluidity and creation mm -hmm. off the bounce. He's not that high-end athlete in terms of a first step or anything. Like I've said, Brandon Miller is in a different category than him to me. And that's a reason that I felt so much better about him as a prospect overall. 
But Jabari Smith is a special shooter, and he didn't really show it this year. He had a rough year in that respect. He was under 31% from deep. So just seeing that, seeing that aggression, seeing what he said after the game about how he wants to be out here with his teammates getting better, I was pleased to see that from him. And I think this Rockets core is going to be really fun. There is a lot of refinement that needs to be done. They need to learn how to play cohesive NBA basketball and whatnot. But they really have stockpiled a lot of talents who I think have a ton of talent. The king of the castle in that respect, though, is what Sam Presti has done with the Oklahoma City Thunder, who we also got to watch. Chet, obviously, after missing what would have been his rookie year with injury. Your boy, Kaysan Wallace. What did you see out of those guys? I don't know. Sam Presti has built a uh, young stud uh, Voltron here with all these different guys. Yeah. Uh, we can start with Chet, man. I really was impressed with his poise and defensive impact on both ends of the floor, but I think Chet immediately uh, can take this Oklahoma City core. They were 13th ranked defensively last season, and if you didn't watch a whole lot of OKC basketball, uh, they were always engaged. They played hard every night. That's one of the tenets that I liked about OKC, even though you're not talented like Houston, right? Houston mm-hmm. defense could come and go. They played hard every night with a 13th ranked defense, but they significantly lacked size and length. And Chet immediately will step in here and be such a great rim protector, a guy who can also switch out to the perimeter. But I think he can propel the Thunder to being a top 10 defense next season. When you have all these great offensive pieces, the Josh Giddies of the world, the SGAs, who's just special. This is also a team that with their uh, with their starting five and their bench unit, you're not going to have any guys who have offensive liabilities. Everybody's going to be able to shoot. Everybody's going to be able to handle a little bit. Everybody's going to be able to play make a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's a really special unit. And uh, you look up and down the roster, man, the two J-dubs, SGA, Giddy, and then the other two guys I point to, Trey Mann and uh, Kaysan Wallace, who, oh, man, I have stockpiled all the Kaysan Wallace stock in the world, <laughs> Carson. He looks so good. Uh, has 20 points. Most of it is off catch and shoot, but I really liked how he played within the flow of the offense. This is an Oklahoma City team that, like I said, doesn't have offensive liabilities. I think they're going to be great defensively next season. You also are going to have great ball handling and decision makers all 48 minutes. That's Giddy, that's yeah. SGA, that's Trey Mann, and that's Kaysan Wallace. The Thunder are slowly building a juggernaut here. I think they're going to be really special next season, but I do think it starts with Chet and how he's going to be able to transcend this team defensively. Absolutely, and I loved Chet as a prospect. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, I'm only 21. I've been really evaluating prospects for probably six years. But I said before Wemby came into the fold that Chet was the best prospect that I had ever seen because he has such a unique combination or it was unique until Wemby came along of rim protection of the flashes of perimeter skill with his handle and his perimeter shot making while being this massive pick and roll target, highly efficient across the board offensively and the playmaking chops. He's just another guy who I think is going to be so consistently impactful on both ends of the floor. And I thought really went out there and balled out today. And a lot of it came down to his level of aggression and really comfort on the floor, Mm -hmm. embracing the physicality of it all, showing us aggressive creation out of the post, rolling hard to the bucket, fighting on the glass, really engaging in the physicality of that arena. For a guy who is every bit as slight as Wemby, I just thought he did so much better in those categories, and it really made all the difference in terms of his impact on this game. Immediately, you see the rim deterrence, just such an awesome rim protector, and uh, I really was impressed by his finishing, his aggression off the bounce. He 
again, is just another fundamentally unselfish guy. He had an awesome touchdown outlet pass in this game. I think super high floor, super high ceiling. He stays healthy. He's going to be an all-NBA guy to me and absolutely is what this OKC team needs. They have perimeter creation out the wazoo with the combination of SGA and Giddy and Jalen Williams and now bringing in Kaysan Wallace and they have tons of length and athleticism on the wings and two-way guys. And it's like you said, basically everybody on the roster can capably shoot and play, make and attack closeouts and defend. But they were small last year. They were big positionally up until you got to the five and we're looking at them starting Jalen with a Y Williams to have a legitimately high-end rim protector, a very high-end roller and target there. I think Chet is exactly what they need. And I'm so excited to watch this team play because I have very high expectations for them. Like what range do you see them in next year? Dude, I think they could be like a top six seed maybe. Like I, mm-hmm. like I said, dude, effort was not an issue. That's one of the biggest things that you see with these young teams is just yeah. giving effort. That wasn't an issue with Oklahoma City last year. They're very talented. They're very hungry. They've got a superstar on offense. Chet Holmgren could be a superstar on defense. Yeah, I, I don't know. Playoff series win, maybe that's a stretch. Uh, final thing on Chet, too, I just want to uh, get out real quick. That's how you properly use your big man who can do all these different things. Mm-hmm. What we saw on the summer league floor, the DHOs, the pick and pops, it immediately gets a defense in rotation. That's how the Spurs need to utilize Wemby, man. Uh, but yeah, I think I think a top six seed maybe is is attainable, man. If they can stay healthy, like I said, you got a superstar in offense in SGA and a potential superstar in Chet, and he addresses their biggest need from last season. I'm very high on the Thunder. I think they very well may be the best really young team, like where all of your core guys are legitimately young since the 2012 Thunder, since the Harden Westbrook KD iteration that obviously went to the finals. I do not expect them to go to the finals next year. I would be pretty shocked if that happened. But when you think about the other very good young teams in recent years, they're few and far between. We had the 2021 Grizzlies in Jaws year two with him at 21 and Triple J at 21 and that entire rotation really composed of guys who were 28 or younger. Young Dylan Brooks actually balled out in a playoff series, if you can believe it. Even rotation guys like Desmond Bain, DeAnthony Melton, who were like 22. Still, they were a pretty quick first round exit. They put up a solid fight against Utah. You have like the 2018 Sixers where their two best guys, 23-year-old MB, 21-year-old Simmons, but they had really important veterans who were like 30-plus with Bellinelli and Ilya Silva and J.J. Redick. This is a team that I think just has so much talent that they are going to be firmly a playoff team, but they also have these important things like the guy, the top 15 player who is going to consistently manufacture high-quality offense in SGA. Now they do have that foundational defensive piece where already they fly around on that end and play with consistent effort. They do just have a general high IQ and synergy I mean, even in summer league, they're operating on a different level than any Mm -hmm. other summer league team that we've seen. And yeah, they have more talent out there on paper, but they have a lot of guys who are playing the right way. And I think Chet really exemplified that too. So to add to that foundation, this dynamic two-way center and a very pro ready, versatile two-way guard like Kaysan Wallace, everybody's going to get better. Nobody is at their peak yet. We saw even Usman Jang, who obviously was a lottery pick for them, but didn't really play much last year. He was impressive today. Flashes of playmaking. His shot was one of the bigger questions about his game. I thought he looked fluid and confident there today. Knocked down, I believe, three triples. If he becomes a consistent rotational guy, they're just sitting on an embarrassment of riches. And 
We had an interesting conversation today. We were just sitting watching the game with Jason Timph and Liv Moods, our volume teammates who just did a great show here, and talking about the potential of them to eventually stockpile these assets and go all in on a star because they have 15 first-round picks over the next seven years. Like, that is just impractical. You cannot build a roster with that many talented guys on it. And at some point, you're going to have to be paying these guys at much higher values than their rookie deals. So it is going to be interesting to see how they manage this. They have the assets right now, like to look at Damian Lillard and they can absorb his contract just by moving. Uh, who Lou is Dort. the Lou Dort? Thank you. And uh, immediately they're like, at least on the fringes of contention, that's a really, really good basketball team. So I think that's something that they might have to embrace at some point, just because you can't keep building a fantasy basketball team of guys who are under 25. But I do want to quickly touch before we get out of here on the Damian Lillard issue, because last we spoke, it was after he had demanded the trade request. Last we spoke about this, that is, and it seemed like he was headed towards Miami. And since then, that narrative has really only grown, even as the Blazers have said that they are far from exclusively talking with Miami and they want the best trade package. Dame is apparently having his agent go around and tell people that if they trade for Dame, they will have an unhappy superstar and that they shouldn't do that. What's your take on that Dame exerting his influence to that extent where he is really trying to force his way to one specific location. It's really unprecedented, Carson. I mean, we've seen guys in the NFL too, right? You think about rookies coming immediately into the league. Eli Manning, I'm not going to the San Diego Chargers. You think about John Elway, I'm not going to play for the Baltimore Colts. We've seen it in the NBA. Dominique Wilkins, I'm not going to play for the Jazz. We've seen uh, Steve Francis, didn't want to play for the Vancouver Grizzlies, right? There's been a precedent of guys asking out to uh, James Harden, Vince Carter, Ben Simmons. The list goes on. But the unprecedented part about this is Dame is saying, yeah, I want to go here. Mm -hmm. I see this on both sides. For the uh, Portland front office, I get it. You want to get the most valuable assets that you can by sending him to whatever location you can. You don't really care where Dame goes now because he's no longer a part of your franchise. I see it on Dame's side, too. Dame has spent his entire career here putting his heart and soul into these seasons with Portland, and he wants to finally go to a winner it's tough. I, I honestly think I'm probably a little more on the Dame side, Carson. Like, I think you can work out a deal where you get a three-team trade and can work it out, but it's truly unprecedented. We've never seen a superstar say, you're going to trade me here, and you're going to do what I say. And he doesn't have a no-trade clause, too, mm -hmm. but I do think it's scaring off teams. I don't think you want to trade for Damian Lillard if he's saying, I'm not going to be happy here. I'm going to immediately ask out. But it's it's unprecedented, man. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy. It is fascinating to think about in terms of the progression of our idea of player empowerment and mm -hmm. mobility because there are like several examples and they're pretty much all in distant history now but of legitimately all-time great players demanding trades and just being straight up denied and then they stay in the same spot and they end up having great success I don't think that would happen in Portland I think that Dame both sides absolutely would be best served by moving on but I was just thinking back like Scotty demanded a trade after the 97 season, they won another title. Akeem demanded a trade in 1992, and then they were able to eventually put together a championship caliber team and win two titles. Kobe demanded a trade in 2007, stuck around. They won two more titles. So there was a time where like, it was actually conceivable that you could turn down a star player's trade request. Now, like the best you can do is postpone it, right? KD requested a trade 
last offseason and it ended up happening midseason. I can't think of a situation where a guy was outright denied like that. And it's gone from, okay, the standard is like LeBron building a super team to maybe it's Katie joining a super team through free agency to now guys obviously requesting out at every few months. We have a star who does so to specifically, I want to be traded, not just a contender, not just here's my shortlist specifically to this team that cannot offer you the best Mm -hmm. package of assets. And I don't love that. I do think if anybody's earned it after all of the years of incompetence that Dame has had to deal with and whatnot, maybe it's him, but he signed a mega extension there. And uh, the reality is Brooklyn can put together a really good package. He could go there and they wouldn't be as good as Miami. I think Miami becomes a top tier title contender, but they'd still be a really good basketball team. OKC, I don't think would do that, but theoretically, if they were to, they would be a really good basketball team. So I'm all in on Dame saying, hey, I want to win a title and I would like you to at least meet me there and trade me to a contender. But to say specifically this one, apparently he didn't even want to go to Philly where now Daryl Morey will not put Tyrese Maxey on the table. So Philly doesn't have a great package to put together. I just think that is a bit too far. And obviously this is a player's league. It is the most player centric league that there is. This is a new level though. And there's an ocean of gap between these two sides. But I ultimately think that Dame's going to end up getting what he wants. I don't think another team is going to put the offer on the table. And uh, would he really hold out if they trade him to one of these teams? I don't think so. But I don't know that anybody wants to call that bluff. So it's going to be fascinating to see in terms of long-term ramifications what this could mean for star Mm -hmm. mobility and power and influence around the league. So that's going to do it for us here today. Guys, this was an absolute blast. Thank you to Blue Wire for letting us use this studio. This was so much fun. If you want more of our content, you can find us across social media, Twitter at nerd underscore sesh, Instagram and TikTok at nerd sesh. You can listen to the podcast across audio platforms and you can subscribe to the volume YouTube page to see all of our content there as well. And with that, as always, I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Last season on the Choosing Sides F1 podcast, we established unequivocally that F1 is the pinnacle of motorsports. We did, but honestly, I was left with more questions than answers, Tony. I'm Tony Cam Brown, a tech, culture, and F1 commentator. And I'm Michael Costa, comedian from The Daily Show. Join us for season two of Choosing Sides F1. Our F1 102, if you will. And get all of the answers. All of them? Listen to Choosing Sides F1 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Davis Miller, host of the new podcast, The Tao of Muhammad Ali. I met Ali in 1988, and surprisingly, we became friends. His influence profoundly changed my perspective on the purpose of life itself. 
I'll tell you that story and also stories of others touched by the champ. Listen to the Dow of Muhammad Ali on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.